take our Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 will be in verses 12 through 19. Moving on from Paul's opening words affirming the resurrection of Christ and offering information he's probably already taught before, at least based on how he, he, he worded that, those particular verses, and reminding the folks in Corinth that, that their faith in the resurrection is well-founded faith. We have good evidence to believe that Christ was raised from the dead. And then he, then he moves on. And in many ways, I think the first 11 verses are more like a prelude to what, what is really his concern here in the church in Corinth. And that is not with, the, with what they think about the resurrection of Christ, but what they think about the resurrection for believers. And so he says, beginning in verse 12, Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are also found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise." For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, throughout the history of the church, I think she's always kind of struggled. I don't know about struggle, but for, for sure there's been a wrestling with a question. What are the essential doctrines of the church? And by essential, I mean what are those theological concepts, biblical truths that we all have to hold to in order to rightly identify ourselves as Christians? Maybe even to put this more directly, are there essential truths that we have to believe in order to say that we actually believe the gospel? It's not to say that we can rank different theological ideas. In other words, I can't say, what's the most important doctrine out there? Because the, the important essential doctrines are kind of interlinked with one another, where if, if you lose one, you lose some others. And so, so the church has kind of always wrestled with this. How do we establish? What are the most important doctrines? And then what are like secondary doctrines? And then even the question, so what are like the tertiary or third level doctrines? So what are the doctrines that are essential to the gospel? We've got to agree on these in order for me to say that you're saved and for you to say I'm saved, at least based on our theology. So what, what's essential to the gospel? Secondary theological positions might be something like our views of church government. We're congregational. There's a lot of pastors out there I respect that are Presbyterian in their church government. I wouldn't suggest that they are unbelievers because of that, all right? But probably we're not going to plant a church together. We're probably not going to serve on staff together, right? So this, this is the question. What, what, what are the essential doctrines of the church? Now, if I were to ask that question in this room, my guess is you would throw out pretty typical 
things. You, you would probably say something like, well, the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus. If you deny that, you've denied the gospel. That's essential. If you say Jesus is something less than fully man, then you've denied the gospel. If you say something less than fully God, you've denied the gospel. By the way, just an insertion here, hence the reason why neither Jehovah's Witness or Mormons are Christian. Because they deny this principled doctrine. All right? So no matter what you hear, no matter what they say, no matter how they might try and present themselves, they, they are not in standing with the actual gospel because they deny the nature of Christ. Another one you'd probably throw out would be the crucifixion. The, the literal crucifixion of Jesus where he actually died on the cross and that that death was a substitutionary death. Meaning he, in him, Christ, Christ paid for, the, for our sins as believers. He took God's wrath for us. So we'd probably say that is essential. The resurrection. Essential doctrine, right? You have to believe. You cannot deny the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus. You can't deny it and still consider yourself a believer of the gospel. But what if I added to a list like that and said, the resurrection of believers from the dead? In fact, if I were to ask you, lay out for me what you think are, maybe not essential doctrines, what are the, what's your top ten list? What, would, would many modern believers throw in that top ten list the resurrection of believers from the dead. Would, would we line that up with doctrine that is essential, that is primary, that is critical? My guess is a lot of believers wouldn't necessarily think that the doctrine of the resurrection, the resurrection of believers, not of Christ, but of believers, was critical doctrine to get right. And that to get this doctrine wrong may mean you run the risk of getting the gospel itself wrong. I think this is what Paul is saying in verses 12 through 19. And this may be a topic that we, you know, that, that folks have not considered a whole lot. We may chalk it up to all that weird stuff related to prophecy, right? Maybe we think about the resurrection from the dead in the same terms that we think about some of the stuff in Revelation. And while it may be interesting and even fascinating, we may not necessarily say it rises to the level of being essential core beliefs. But again, I think Paul would say that. And I think that's what he's doing in this next part of 1 Corinthians 15, keeping in mind the overall point of the chapter you know, Paul is finishing up this book by reaffirming for the folks in Corinth the doctrine of the resurrection, which for Paul means not only the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of believers. It is the most extensive chapter on the resurrection, and in particular on, on the resurrection of the believer. In fact, beginning in verse 12, going to the end, this is Paul's focus. The vast majority of the material in this chapter is going to be focused not on the resurrection of Christ. You can tell from what we studied over the last two weeks, 
Paul, Paul believes that the folks in Corinth believe the resurrection. They've got the foundation. He used the language of, I've already received this. I've delivered it to you. You also have received it. You've believed it. You stand in it. He's clearly, in the first 11 verses, rehashing something that is common knowledge among the church in Corinth. The resurrection of Christ is not a theological issue that the folks there are having. Now, they got a truckload of other issues in the church, right? And we've walked through those painfully at times. The resurrection of Jesus is not one of them. Paul is clearly using the first 11 verses of this chapter to set up what is his concern. For the folks in Corinth. And that is that there are some who seem to be having issues with what Paul considers to be just as important as the resurrection of Jesus. We'll see that in just a moment. And that is the resurrection of believers. So keeping in mind, you know, what we've been talking about, you know, so what is what is our outline thus far about our proper understanding of the resurrection in general? Well, we, we've looked at the first, uh, the first principle last week was that the way the resurrection grounds our faith. The resurrection is essential because it grounds our faith. And tonight, we're looking at number two. So, this will be blanks to fill in your outline here. And, and really, you, you, you could say this, this is what Paul has been building to. And in many ways, this is what he's going to continue to flesh out. The, 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 the why, the what, the when, the how, the where of the resurrection of the believer. And his first concern is to demonstrate we absolutely must believe this doctrine. And I know you and I may not think that this, this seems to be an essential matter, but we'll see that it is. The resurrection demands our confidence. And so in verses 12 through 19, Paul is going to take, you know, the pretty standard approach to the way he argues, the way he reasons things out, his, his own kind of logic. We've seen, we've seen it at work before. It's kind of what he does in the book of Romans, and he's, he's already done it here in the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul's just going to gonna lay out for them seven reasons, or you could even say seven consequences for denying the resurrection of the believer. Why does this matter so much? Why do we need to believe this doctrine? Why would it rise to this level? And to be clear, there have been periods in the church where they were very concerned about this doctrine. All seven of the early church confessions, the creeds, from about the first 300 years of church history, all seven of them reference the resurrection of the believer from the dead. And that was a way to kind of synthesize what are the core doctrinal beliefs the church needs to hold to. So this is, this is a serious thing. So why, why, what's the big deal? What, what happens if we end up denying the resurrection? Well, seven consequences. If we deny our resurrection, then, number one, we deny the resurrection of Jesus. First problem is that to deny our resurrection, to suggest that we won't physically, literally be raised from the dead, to deny that doctrine then is to deny the resurrection of Jesus himself. Now, notice how Paul kind of gets into the topic. Verse 12, Paul sounds like he's asking a question, but he's really not. He's making an accusation. Paul is the master of that rhetorical tool, right? Where it sounds like a question, but no, he's, you're in the crosshairs and he's firing an arrow straight at you. 
All right? Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, and this is a given, by the way. He's not questioning this part. Folks in Corinth believe it. That's what he's just stated in the first 11 verses. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, again, quite frankly, I don't think Paul is concerned to hear an answer to this. Like, like he's, he's not interested in why, why would you deny this doctrine? This is an accusation. It's a way of saying, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, why would it be such a big deal to believe in the resurrection of the believer? Why would there then be some among you who would question this? And notice that little phrase, some among you. So he's not talking about the Greeks that are outside the church. He's not talking about the Jews that are outside the church. When he says some among you, he's not talking about the city of Corinth. He's saying there are folks in the church. In other words, the elder of the church is reading this letter. And for lack of a better term, there are people in the pews out there. And they know he's talking to them. And the people beside them know he's talking to them. All right? There wouldn't have been any anonymity here. They've been well aware of who the folks are in the bullseye. Now, Paul, again, he doesn't give us why this is the case. We've talked already about the issues the Greek philosophical systems had with the human flesh, with what we call the material world. They believed it was evil and intrinsically evil. They thought the spirit was good. And that's why I say in Acts chapter 17, when Paul preaches to all the smarty pants at, uh, at Mars Hill, right, all the smart philosophers of Athens, and he preaches about the resurrection, that's why some treat him like he was a country bumpkin, like, like, he was a, like he was a fool, because he was talking about the resurrection from the dead. And they were grounded in this Greek philosophical system that said, you know, your flesh is evil, and the idea being, why would divinity come back in flesh? So perhaps there are Greeks among the folks in Corinth who are still influenced by this. It could also be some Jews who are influenced by the Sadducees. You remember this, right, from Sunday school as a kid? You, you can remember that they don't believe the resurrection. They're sad, you see? That's the only thing you all are going to remember tonight, isn't it? All right? That little thing. So that's how you can differentiate the Pharisees from the Sadducees. The Pharisees were like orthodox. They believed in all the Old Testament. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books. And they denied the resurrection. So they're sad, you see. All right? So there could be some Jews that have been influenced by that Sadducean theology. Whatever the case was, they're living with this, this kind of distinction. They don't have any trouble, for whatever reason, with the resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And I I do want to point that phrase out, resurrection of the dead. When Paul uses that term, he's not talking about Jesus. That's a done deal. He's talking about believers. And and let's, let's be clear here. This is what the doctrine is teaching, that believers in Jesus Christ will be literally, physically, in the flesh, brought back to life resurrected. There will be a joining of soul with body and will live eternally like that. All right? So, so after, after this opening accusation, why is it that you would think this way? He then drops this bomb on them in verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
it's a way of Paul saying, look, this is like a house of cards. or It's like dominoes. If you pull one card out, the whole thing falls down. And for Paul to pull out the card that is the resurrection of the dead pulls down the whole thing. If you say, and here, here's what I think is between the lines here. If you say humans can't be resurrected from the dead, then there's no reason to believe Jesus came back from the dead. This, by the way, is everything for Paul. This is the hinge on which the rest of the argument is going to pivot, all right? This is the critical idea. If Jesus was fully God and fully man, then that means his resurrection and the state in which he now lives. So stick with me here, people. Maybe you've never thought about what Jesus is like now. But he's still fully God and fully man. I think I've probably lost some of you for the rest of the time now, right? I've never... But what else would he be? It was a literal, physical resurrection of the flesh. He came back in body. He didn't just appear to be in body. Now, it was a really super special body, right? One that could walk through a wall, which would be awesome. All right? So, but that that would be awesome, and Jesus was able to do that. However, he also was able to eat fried fish, okay? So, this is a literal, physical body. He had people hold on to him, right? He had people touch him. He's not a ghost. He doesn't just seem to be. Now, that same body also shot up in the sky, which is another pretty cool trick, right? But Jesus, at this point, even now, he is fully God and fully man. That, that, that nature has not changed. In order for the resurrection to accomplish the task for which it was designed, Jesus had to be raised in the flesh. The human flesh that died on the cross had to be brought back to life. If the resurrection of the dead is not possible, meaning if human flesh cannot be brought back to life, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And again, for Paul, this is the fundamental problem. Pull this card out, you knock this domino down, it knocks down the rest of them. This kills everything. So his first and primary point is this. Deny the resurrection of the believer and you deny the resurrection of Christ. And then you've now got major problems. So this again is how Paul's going to argue the rest of it. The rest of what he's going to say is now based on this kind of logic. And this is a particular method of argumentation, by the way, all right? where, where the, your conclusion is based on consequence. Deny this, then this. And if this, then this. So now he's, now he's going to show how all kinds of stuff then go away. Believers aren't raised from the dead, Jesus isn't raised from the dead. So now let's look at the rest of them. Number two, or letter B. So, then the preaching of the gospel is denied. You deny the resurrection of the believer, then you deny the resurrection of Christ, and you deny the preaching of the gospel. You rob the preaching of the gospel of any power. Notice that next phrase in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, so again, you note, this this is his argumentation. If this, then this. If that, then this. So, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. 
word empty there is a great word, flashes back to the Old Testament. Solomon, you know, one of your favorite books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, right? It's a joy to read. Uh, not really, but I would, it's well worth your time. Okay, so Ecclesiastes, and how does he begin? What does he think about life? Is life one big bundle of joy, day in and day out? No, he begins by saying, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Life is meaningless. It's like the blowing in the wind. The word vanity is the word empty. I mean, that the Hebrew term that's used there is very similar to the Greek term, and undoubtedly Paul, being, you know, rooted and grounded in Old Testament theology, when he undoubtedly uses this term probably in a similar kind of concept. In other words, the, the, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is robbed of substance. It's meaningless. It's nothing. It's empty. It's vain. It's a waste of our time. Why would we keep doing this? If Christ is... If believers aren't raised, Christ isn't raised. If Christ isn't raised, why am I killing myself like this? Why am I out here preaching? It robs preaching of its power. I think you can see this firsthand, by the way. That this, there's, there's great examples of this all across our country. You walk into almost any, not all, but almost any, mainline denominational church. Those in particular that have taken the progressive liberal track of things. And you listen to what they call preaching. And you tell me what you think. Go online and look some of them up, all right? Put it in the Googler, all right? And get some of that out and find, find some of these kinds of this kind of preaching where you have preachers in the pulpit who deny the resurrection. They, they, in other words, they'll say things like, it doesn't matter if you believe it was real or not. It's fine if you think it's myth. It's silly if you think it's literal. But you can believe it if you want. That's the kind of stuff they'll say. And listen to their preaching. And you tell me. You listen to that. And then you listen to John MacArthur. And you tell me if there's a difference. Of course there's a difference. To deny the resurrection is to rob the very thing I'm doing of its power. The only reason there's power in it is because Jesus Christ is alive. I am preaching to you not about a dead man who died 2,000 years ago in a tragic, horrible, brutal way who did a lot of cool things and taught some really neat stuff. I'm not interested in giving you a historical lecture. Though those can be fine in their right setting. Preaching is a much different task. And the only time preaching is meaningful and significant is if it's grounded in the resurrection. This is what he's saying. The resurrection is what gives preaching its power. Take away the resurrection, you take away the power of preaching. Well, and then he goes on to a third. <clears throat> it's not only that it denies the resurrection of Christ or the preaching of the gospel, it also denies the substance of our faith. So in a similar kind of way, he makes a comparison Rest of verse 14, the very end there. And your faith is also empty. So if Christ is not risen, then preaching is without substance, and then your faith is without substance. You believe a fairy tale. You believe in a myth. You might as well believe in the tooth fairy. You might as well believe in something else. 
You might as well believe in, in one of these, who, who knows what? You might as well believe they're little green men living on the other side of Mars. All right, You might as well believe something like this. If you deny the resurrection, then you deny the very heart and soul of your faith. It's necessary. Faith requires belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Without it, well, your, your faith is then, as he says, empty. So it's without substance. You know, this is, uh, this is fair season. Anybody here go to the state fair? You don't want to admit it. Okay, some of you want to admit it. All right, the rest of you don't, okay? It's like when I asked you if I bought a lottery ticket. How about we ask that, all right? Okay, I won't do that, all right? So state fair, I think our county fair is going on. Now, one of the things, of course, that's a big draw about a fair is the food, right? And I know kids, as much as anything like, cotton candy. Have you ever squirted just a little bit of water on cotton candy? It's like a magic trick, right? I mean, you can take a pile of this stuff. Have you ever seen how much cotton candy you can put in your mouth? Have you? No? I'm the only one that's ever done that. All right, okay, I don't believe it for a minute. I'm looking at some of you and thinking, no, you've stuffed cotton candy before. I can tell by looking on your face, all right? So you can put a lot in there. Why? Because as soon as it hits, it's just, right? It's just, it, it's nothing. There's no substance to it. That's kind of what I think of when I think of these terms he used to hear about preaching, about faith. It's like it... It's like it, it just, it's just nothing. It's just poof. There's no substance, significance, value to it. So your preaching is empty. The substance of our faith is empty. Number four. It also denies the testimony of the witnesses. So then notice this next part, verse 15. So, so Paul begins with the word yes. And this is, again, kind of another... This is another way to continue the argument. It's still the if-then. It's still the conclusion of the original premise, so to speak. The, the, the consequence of the main principle. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So again, he comes back to that central statement the, the essential tie between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. If you deny one, you deny the other. If you deny the resurrection of believers, then that means Jesus isn't raised from the dead. And that means Paul, Peter, the apostles, liar, liars, pants on fire, right? And notice the term he uses. He calls them what? He says, we have been false witnesses of God. Because we have testified that who raised Jesus? God. So in other words, they've gone all over the known world practically, at least their little corner of it, preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And if the resurrection of the believer is not true, then the resurrection of Christ isn't true, which means they have committed blasphemy. That's what he's getting at. Do you remember the Ten Commandments, right? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Okay. So there are two issues here. One, the second half of the commandments, there's one that says, do not bear false witness. Notice he uses the term. That can't be a coincidence, right? I mean, that can't be a coincidence. He uses the word false witness. But then you also remember from the first table of the commands, he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God 
in vain. Unfortunately, we only think of one problem when we think of that command. We think of somebody using God's name, right? Like saying, oh my, okay? That's usually, and that is, all right? That is a form of taking his name in vain. But now let's, let's put all these, all these together though. What is the word vain? Vanity. <laughs> Using God's name as if it had no substance to it. Using it as if it were empty. Ascribing unto God stuff he did not say. Again, I know our typical thing is we think you're committing, you're violating this command when you say use God's name lightly or use it in front of a cuss word. And again, that is a violation of the command. But I'm telling you there are evangelicals all over this country who say things like God told me to say and they're violating this command. Far more egregious than using God's name in other ways. I think far more egregious. The people out there who claim to be prophets, by the way, this doesn't have anything to do with this text, but I, I, this really gets my goat, as they say, all right? The folks out there who claim to be prophets, who claim to tell you about the end times or when Jesus is coming because God's told them this or God's told them that, they have broken the commandment and they are guilty of blasphemy. It's pretty serious, right? Paul's saying that's what they've done. That's what they've done. If, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, they're going around saying, God has raised Jesus from the dead. They are taking God's name in vain. Their preaching is empty, and they're using God's name in an empty fashion. So, so this, again, is a devastating consequence. It's a, it's a significant problem. And, and in essence, then, what these folks are saying is all these other witnesses we referenced at the beginning of chapter 15, right? Cephas and the twelve and the 500, some of whom have fallen asleep, but the majority of which still remain to this day, we're saying that all of them are false testifiers. Which really gives you two options. To kind of paraphrase C.S. Lewis, either they're lunatics, right, they're crazy, or they're liars. Either one's a problem. So this this is what happens, the consequence of denying the resurrection. All right, number five. Or, yeah, letter E, right? Yeah, the forgiveness of our sins. So that the last three here, Paul gets personal. Up to this point, it's kind of been theological. You know, he's talked about preaching. He's, he's talk, talked about our, the, the faith, meaning there's no substance to it. But now, now he, he really bumps it up. So notice how he repeats the main premise. Verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Same kind of language as it being empty, what he said in, in verse, 15, uh, verse 14. But then he adds this, and you're still in your sins. Well, now, now he probably has their attention, right? Not that the other stuff wouldn't have, but I mean, what, what's heart and soul of the gospel? What, what's one of the things we love the most? <laughs> Is that in the gospel, God has forgiven me, Right? He no longer holds my sins against me. He's he's imputed the penalty of my sin to Jesus. In other words, he's transferred it to Jesus' account, judged Jesus for it, and then then he took the righteousness of Christ and he counted that to my account. This is the grand transaction of the gospel. 
Paul is saying if Jesus, if believers aren't raised from the dead, Jesus isn't raised from the dead, and that means you are still dead in your trespasses and sin. Your sins aren't forgiven. Now, this is important because I think we often assume that the sin issue is dealt with in the crucifixion of Jesus. And to be sure, a major portion of it is. The penalty for sin. But the crucifixion does not deal with the power of sin's ultimate curse, which is death. What has to happen for the crucifixion to be a sufficient atonement that then grants life? Jesus has to defeat the ultimate curse of sin, which is death. And he can only do that by coming back from the dead. Had Jesus only died on the cross and not come back from the dead, we're not talking about the forgiveness of sins. Sins cannot be forgiven. They cannot be forgiven apart from the resurrection. I mean, the only other option then was what they did in the Old Testament, which was a foreshadowing and a momentary means. They did it over and over and over again, right? The only other option would be for Jesus to keep coming back and dying over and over and over again. But for it to be one and done, one-time sacrifice, that means he had to come back one time from the grave. So, Forgiveness of sins. It's, we've got to believe in this doctrine because if we deny it, then we deny the very power that forgives sins. Number six, you all looked at this outline and thought, there's no way he's getting through it. I didn't want to make a bold prediction and not actually do it, but I was pretty sure I was going to be able to. All right, but, so we will. The life after our death. Notice the next phrase. Then also, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You know what he means by the word perished? Condemned to hell. That's what he's getting at. It's the natural consequence of the previous verse. If Christ isn't raised, then I'm still in my sin. And if I die in my sin, then, then what happens? I pay the, the, the penalty, which is eternal punishment. And so now he's saying, not only are your sins not forgiven in this life, but those that you know, your loved ones who died, martyrs who gave themselves for the sake of the gospel, they've perished. There's no life after death. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then there's no life after death. This is it. And so then that leads him to his last point. Letter G E F E F G. Yeah, okay. The reason for our hope. So notice how he concludes. If in this life only we have hope. This is based on verse 18. So if we haven't had our sins forgiven, then those who've died are just dead in their sins and they've now perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if this is all we have to look forward to today, or tomorrow, or however long our life is on this planet, if this is all we have to look forward to, where's the hope in that? There is no hope. If our only hope is in this life, if this is as good as it gets, 
then the only thing we should get is pity. And I think Paul particularly has in mind, I I would think, the fact that believers up to this point have faced intense persecution because of what they've believed. And again, many have died. And so what, what, what is our reason for continuing? What is our reason for moving forward? Why would we give ourselves? Why, why, why is it that there are folks in Jerusalem who are being arrested? Why, why would it be that the folks in Rome being fed to lions, at least eventually they will be? Why, why, would, why would we give ourselves to this? We are, we are just to be pitied. We've been fools. We've died for nothing. If all we've got is hope in this life, then we are to just be pitied. We've devoted ourselves to a pipe dream, as it were. And there's no substance to it. By the way, this is another important reminder to us that the language of hope in Scripture forces us to see beyond the temporal realities of this day and age and realize that our greatest days are after this life is over. Now, I would caution you, church, in a setting like this, maybe we nod our heads and say yes, but when we get back to the material things of our life and this world and the things that are on our bucket list and what we'd like to do and what we'd like to see before we die because we want to enjoy this and we want to enjoy that, just keep in mind it is all garbage compared to glory that is to come. But I don't know if we always believe that. I don't know if we always want to believe that. Perhaps the comfort that we have enjoyed in this particular day and age keeps us from really appreciating the language of biblical hope that points to forever. I mean, if you're a guy who is facing being stoned to death, and, and being shipwrecked, and being whipped, and being run out of town, and being threatened. It's hard to get jazzed about this life, isn't it? <laughs> Paul was jazzed about the life to come. And for Paul, all of it hinges on this, that my life to come is not like just some disembodied spirit floating around in the clouds, which is how a lot of people conceive of heaven, Right? But the biblical imagery of heaven is very real and literal and tangible and physical. And our greatest days will be experienced as we experience life now, meaning with a physical body, for lack of a better term, with flesh and blood. This life may be destroyed, but as Job said, in my flesh I will see God. As Job said it in the Old Testament, right? In my flesh I will see God. See Him. This is the great hope of the believer. Now, Paul's going to go on and flesh this out. He's going to talk more about the, the, the why and how, why this is so important and how this is the case. Why is it that we need to be raised from the dead? Uh, how that connects then to the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to continue to flesh out why these things are so intimately married together. Uh, but I, I think it's just good for us to think in those terms. To make sure that we're, we're keeping an eternal perspective here as we, as we look, look down the barrel of another election day, all right? Keep in mind, your greatest citizenship still is not, is not of this country. You are a citizen of a far greater country with a far greater king 
a far better health plan, much greater retirement. <laughs> you want to talk about Social Security, all right? Try a city that's gates are made of pearl, all right? Okay, that's a much better deal, all right? So just keep that in mind as you look at what's going on in this world. We've got a better day to come, and that's because of the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that is found in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of us as believers uh, to to know that there will be that glorious day. And and while there may be questions and uncertainty about when and exactly what that may look like, we know your word is clear. This is a part of the message, the hope of the gospel. Believers will be raised unto life. And so, Father, may that encourage and inspire us then now in this life. Uh, may, may that encourage us not only in our own faith and obedience, but also as we seek to share that message with the dead who are around us. And that only Christ can bring them life. So, Father, I pray that you would use us in that task and for your glory. That you'd gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.